1: Welcome, ladies and gents, to episode five of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamochko. And I'm Mike Keshoring. In this week's episode, we're going to chat about 52-week high investing and Brexit. What's going on with that? Does anyone really know? Hexo acquires a new strike in a $260 million deal in the cannabis space. Is there more to come? Boeing's 737 aircraft suffered a tragic crash, and we're going to discuss some of the implications oak tree goes to brookfield asset management what does that deal mean and did howard marks just call a market top finally more discussion of the Barrick and newmont drama okay so let's get to it the first thing up to bat is the Barrick and newmont news So as we previously discussed on last week's podcast Barrick ended up dropping its hostile bid in favor of a friendly joint venture agreement uh, for the Nevada assets between the two companies. And so the scenario that, that we called and that we viewed as most likely, and this kind of proves out our theory that I believe Barrick's hostile bid, uh, no premium, uh, all stock, and so very unrealistic, it was likely just a ploy to create some drama and get Newmont to the
2: uh, To the table in terms of discussions for this deal, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, yeah, it was something that we had mentioned was the basically the delta uh, in ownership that Barrick would have in the joint venture, which Barrick thought that they should have 63 percent. Newmont thought 55 percent. What ended up coming into uh, the actual deal was that Barrick would hold a 61.5 percent ownership. So right, you know, in in between those two yeah so this was a deal that
1: shareholders really wanted uh, the joint venture as opposed to just getting bigger for the sake of getting bigger and there's real value here if we talk about synergies or cost savings the companies estimate synergies of 500 million dollars per year through this joint venture, and so that is a total value of $4.7 billion in total
2: savings that goes right to the bottom line, so shareholders have got to be happy with that. And you'll, you'll, you'll recall that Barrick actually estimated the total synergies of a merger were around $750 million so the about two-thirds of that lied in the Nevada assets
1: yeah and ultimately synergies are highly speculative and and typically don't happen so I guess we'll monitor the situation and see what happens next but ultimately this situation seems resolved the hostile bid is good and dead we had a friendly deal between these two in the form of a joint venture so everyone should be happy also note that the Goldcorp deal by uh, Newmont
2: is likely to go ahead as well. One other aspect of the uh, the Newmont and Goldcorp deal is that it actually opens the door for joint ventures between Goldcorp and... Barrick. And Barrick, yes. yeah.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Like I said, we'll see what happens here. Some MA news, Brookfield Asset Management is buying a controlling stake in distressed debt specialist, Oaktree Capital in a $4.7 billion deal. So what Brookfield is doing, they're pretty strong in asset management with respect to real estate, infrastructure, and private equity. So they're effectively expanding into an additional asset class, that being distressed debt in which they didn't really have the expertise. But Oaktree really is a special specialist here, Oaktree with $120 billion in assets under management. Once the deal closes, this will bring Brookfield to $500 billion in assets under management. So truly one of the leaders, if not the number one in the asset management space certainly up there with Blackstone Carlisle KKR and and those groups stuff specific on the deal it was a pretty slim premium 12.4 percent over the market price cash and share bid Uh, for now they're just taking out the public shareholders the remainder is going to be owned by employees uh, specifically co-chairman Bruce Karsh and Howard Marks, they will maintain operating control and uh, obviously a significant portion of the business. And so for now, Oaktree will be independent and operated independently. And uh, one thing I wanted to chat about is uh, Howard Marks literally wrote the book uh, on mastering the market cycle. In fact, that's exactly what his book was called. So I think it's notable. He's really known for making really good cyclical bets. Prior to 2008, they were selling a lot of assets and raising cash so they could really capitalize during the global financial crisis and buy a lot of assets on the cheap and have really well-performing funds uh, from the bottom of that uh, recession there. And so when Howard Marks is selling, does that indicate the top of the cycle here from the, quote,
2: master of the market cycle himself? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's something to consider. I mean, what it really looks like is that this is just an organized succession plan for the Oak Tree founders starting in the year 2022 until 2029. They'll be able to sell their shares directly to Brookfield, um, which will ultimately result in Brookfield having the ability to have 100% ownership. The other aspect that you mentioned was that this expands Brookfield's credit platform. Um, and so just like to note that 76% of uh, Oaktrees AUM is uh, credit based.
1: Yeah, and Howard Marks certainly not uh, not a young guy, a, a veteran, been in the business for a long time. I believe he's mid 70s, so it looks like a retirement play for him, but note the the timing of this sale and and his expertise in market cycles. So I would take that with uh, You know, a little bit of caution on where we are with respect to uh, the market cycle. Boeing 737 aircraft crashes, tragically killing all 157 passengers on board. Now, this is a tough story. Obviously, thoughts and prayers to all the... Families of the, the victims, the crash victims, and just a really sad story. What happened was uh, Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 8, it crashed without any survivors. And this was actually the second time this model of aircraft has fatally crashed in the last five months. So clearly regulators and market participants thinking that there's something wrong with the plane. Uh, on the week, Boeing stock lost over 10%. Uh, representing 25 billion in lost market cap. So people are are focused on whether or not there's a design flaw. A number of countries went on and grounded the aircraft, the 737, and the U.S. and Canada followed that up on Wednesday. And then, in fact, the company, Boeing itself, issued a global alert to ground all of these planes. So You know, a lot of potential reputational damage, a lot of operating issues, but I mean, it's the right move to have to ground these things before they know that there's uh, some sort of software error. They're working on upgrading the software. It might be uh, with something with uh, balancing the plane or something of that nature, but... Certainly serious market implications. What are your thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah, so I believe they announced that they will be providing a software update in the next 10 days. So we'll see if they're able to stick to that timeline. But from a market perspective, what's been interesting is watching the option market. Is that the in terms of the costs of the put options, you're seeing the cost of hedging against a further 10% decline has actually doubled in the last few days, which is really just an example of investors buying insurance after um, an incident.
1: Yeah, certainly there's a lot of concern out there by the market. If we talk about how meaningful this plane is for Boeing, I mean, it is up to two-thirds of future deliveries and 40% of the company's total profits. So certainly very material here. They've delivered 350... And have uh, total orders of more than 5,000 major implications here if there are safety issues discovered and really just a a sad story and hopefully Boeing
2: can uh, fix this ASAP so these issues no longer happen. And then in terms of the second order effects is what you're seeing is that Air Canada has actually suspended um, their financial guidance for 2019 as they do have 24 737s. Um, And they were due to take another delivery of another 18 in 2019. So that puts a lot of their financial well-being in the balance in the future here. Certainly
1: far ranging implications here and a lot of market disruption for nearly everyone involved in the aviation industry. So we'll keep an eye on this one, see how it plays out. But hopefully, you know, the worst of this is over and and companies can recover from this, which I'm sure they will. A lot of news in the cannabis space this week. We'll start out with some consolidation, some M&A news with Hexo acquiring Newstrike brands in a 260000000 million all-stock deal. So what this does is it makes Hexo quite a bit larger. Now they're going to rank in the top five of Canadian cannabis producers, which includes companies such as Canopy Growth, Afria, Aurora, Ray. So another big deal. We can expect a lot more consolidation in the industry. You don't really need hundreds of licensed producers. It'll likely end up over many, many years looking like tobacco, where you have a very small handful of major, major players. And that's how things seem to be starting to play out here. What do you think about it?
2: Yeah, so Hexo, they have a really large footprint in Quebec, but this will actually uh, really increase their distribution footprint from three to eight provinces, which is a positive. The other aspect that I was looking at was their relatively low premium at the time of the deal, only around 4%, and near new strikes, 52-week low, which is Mm -hmm. kind of interesting and could leave the door open for a competing bid. Now, there is lockups in support of the merger for about 25% of the ownership base, so a competing bid would likely have to go hostile since the board is in support of this uh, of this bid. But what are, what are your thoughts on on the possibility of a hostile bid?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's always a possibility when a company is in play, like Newstrike is at the moment. So we'll see if anyone steps up. Like I say, a lot of consolidation in this industry. A decent number of players really driving the deals here, whether it be Cannabis, aurora or free are really trying to consolidate they all want that uh, it's kind of ego driven to be the number one producer the number one market capitalization they're all aiming for that uh, number one spot so we'll see i don't think there's any truly unique assets here i know that new strike does have a, a marketing deal with the tragically hip the uh, you know famous canadian band but uh, is that really a unique asset i doubt that anyone steps up but sometimes these things are a surprise so if you're a new strike shareholder likely find some synergies in this deal so, such that they could create value in the combined entity and and see where things go from
2: there and it does actually improve their balance sheet a little bit uh, bringing their net cash position up by about 50 million dollars in the acquisition since it was just an all-paper deal
1: yeah this deal could make sense in additional cannabis news a really surprising press release out of aurora cannabis appointing nelson peltz as a strategic advisor now nelson peltz is a really famous at least in the hedge fund world Activist investor out of the US, a fairly old gentleman. What is he in his mid to late 70s? Yeah, I would think that. So he's CEO and founder of Trian Fund Management, a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. He's had a number of notable activist campaigns, uh, including Heinz, Mondelez, in which he was previously director of both. He's currently chairman of Wendy's, the restaurant company, and director of Procter & Gamble. Some of his latest activist campaigns, there's General Electric, which, you know, obviously hasn't gone very well for him. There's also uh, Procter & Gamble, of which he successfully campaigned for a board seat. So his background is largely in uh, these American large-cap classic companies that have been around for decades and decades, if not hundreds of years. Names like GE, Kraft, Wendy's. So to see him get involved in Aurora Cannabis, it's just somewhat of a head, head scratcher, but in my opinion, a huge win for Aurora, given his connections to many of these consumer
2: large consumer brands in the US. Yeah, and in terms of the consumer brands, I think that's exactly it. That's what they're looking for is a way to get partnerships with some of these reputable consumer packaged goods. One of the other activist campaigns that he uh, had launched was with PepsiCo as well. So there's plenty of uh, strategic partnerships that he could possibly add value on. And then on his side, he actually hasn't had to put up any capital. So he's just being issued these options. Uh, I believe it was 20 million or options to purchase 20 million shares at 1034 for the next... Three or three or four years actually. And those options would represent around 2% of Aurora's shares outstanding. So if he is able to you know, negotiate a partnership with a CPG company. This could look like a bargain in terms of the compensation being given to him.
1: He has a good chance of creating a lot of shareholder value at Aurora. And being the finance nerd that I am, I just had to calculate the value of his options package. So I calculated $150 million in value from Aurora to nelson peltz here in the form of a fairly sizable options package so we'll see if that ends up paying off for the company
2: yeah the other aspect that i didn't mention was that this could perhaps focus the company less on production growth and more on returns focus so focusing on roic as opposed to just growing production Certainly he is a champion
1: of shareholder governance, good corporate governance, and uh, value creation from a shareholder perspective. So it's worthwhile monitoring him. And I think if you're an Aurora shareholder, that you've got to be pretty happy with that, despite the fairly sizable uh, dilution there. And lastly, I can help but comment on this Wall Street Journal article regarding cannabis drinks. The main point of the article is that they, in fact, taste terrible. Many companies trying to develop uh, THC beverages, and some of the early feedback from consumers is, quote, oily grass flavors with notes of dish soap and urine. So these cannabis extracts, they don't mix well with water, and, and these drinks, not only do they not taste good, but they need to be shaken frequently. So you know making you work as a as a drinker, not just that, but they also take quite a while to feel that THC, the you know, the effects of the cannabis it could be even longer than an hour. So certainly some some growing pains here with respect to
2: attacking this potential massive new market. And yeah. I can just imagine the sheer terror of the uh, the employees of these different companies and these product groups when they are getting this feedback that would uh, be very interesting feedback to receive. Another thing is that uh, one of the companies that we just mentioned, Hexo, they actually do have a partnership with Molson Coors, so hopefully they're able to be more successful.
1: Yeah, I think this will ultimately be uh, figured out. It's just how long will it take and what's the end result. But uh, a lot of money being thrown at this segment, a lot of hopes and dreams, so we'll see how it turns out. UK MPs vote to reject a no-deal Brexit. so they actually voted, it was pretty close, 312 to 308, to reject the scenario in which the UK would leave the EU with no trade agreements, also known as a hard Brexit. You've probably been hearing that terminology constantly ever since they had the referendum in June 2016. And the timeframe since that happened has been a lot of news with really no action. There was, in fact, a Brexit deadline of March 29th this month, at the end of this month, in which they were supposedly or supposed to have a deal to exit the, the European Union either on a friendly basis with a, a number of trade agreements or on a, you know emergency basis really with no backstop. But it looks like that will ultimately be delayed. And if you think about it, No one really knows what's going on here. It just seems to be an unmitigated disaster. Obviously, Brexit is just completely unnecessary. It's horrible for the UK economy. It's horrible for the currency, awful for the stock market. Ultimately, I think and I hope that they just scrap the whole thing and just forget about it, realize it was a mistake. The initial referendum was way too close. Both sides were nearly at 50-50. Now, I think the leave vote are really starting to realize or have realized over the past number of years that it was
2: a horrible decision, and I think that they really regret it. Yeah, and so in terms of the implications for European investors, those have been discussed in, in great de- detail over the last couple of years, but what are some of the second-order effects for the North American investors?
1: I think it mostly depends if companies you're invested in have operations in the U.K., and there's currency issues as well. Obviously, if they scrap Brexit, I believe that the pound would rally. The UK economy would do quite a bit better. But if they do, if they do have a hard Brexit, I mean, you can likely expect a recession in the UK. And uh, you know, a lot of companies looking to leave. So it's more so if you are uh, in Canada or the U.S., not a big deal. You're probably annoyed by it by now, as all of us. It takes up time in our uh, reading schedule. But nonetheless, if you are a uh, European, it is an important issue. And so we hope, like we think nearly everyone, that this whole thing just gets ultimately scrapped and we can all just walk away and forget about it.
2: And remove the uncertainty. I had a
1: couple questions on our blog post this week it was called playing both offense and defense with factor investing. Now this specific post noted uh, it was really regarding uh, momentum investing in a in a specific strategy within the momentum factor it's called the 52 uh, week high anomaly and and what this strategy entails is you want to go long stocks closest to their 52-week high, the highest price the stock has reached in the past year, and go short stocks furthest away from their 52-week high. So you're effectively betting on stocks that are going up to continue going up, capitalizing on that momentum, and conversely betting against stocks that have been going down. You're betting that they will continue to go down. So a strategy that you know, it has produced some pretty spectacular results historically. I got the numbers in front of me now. It's also in the blog post. The long portfolio of stocks near their 52-week their high, the top 10% or top decile, compounded at 16% annually. And that's over... Uh, 20 years. So if you invested $100,000 in that portfolio, you'd have approximately $2 million. Now, if we look at the bottom 10%, the the worst momentum stocks in that basket of Canadian securities, your $100,000 investment would have suffered a a 90% loss. So some substantial divergence there. And I wanted to talk about how factors are implemented within ETFs, because you're probably hearing a lot about a momentum ETF, a value ETF, a quality ETF, and those are all specific factors. And the way that factors were meant to be implemented is on a long short basis where you're long top decile or whatever uh, you know quantile it is and then short the bottom betting on the top betting against the bottom a true alpha creator where you are market neutral or hedged against any market beta, any sort of market effects. And that's historically how it was written about in the financial research, the academic research that discovered these factors. But in reality, how they've been implemented uh, specifically in the ATF form is on a long only basis. So I indicated, look, they're they're actually only utilizing factors half-assed. What do you think about it? yeah so why why are they only these
2: smart beta strategies? Why are they only going half ass?
1: Well, most investors invest on a long only basis, and these uh, ETF manufacturers are doing are really offering what I call value tilts, not true factor investing, but they are more so offering index investors, people who want to be long the market the ability to do slightly better than the market by uh, you know tilting these tilting their portfolios in favor of specific factors on the long side. Obviously long short investing is for more sophisticated investors. There's another hurdle there in in just the understanding of how hedging and hedge funds work and, and short selling. So that's certainly a barrier and I believe there are some regulatory issues as well but on the short selling side it certainly is a very unique skill you can't just be a long only investor and start implementing short sales it definitely requires skill training practice there's a number of unique aspects in running a short portfolio such as you know managing your borrow managing borrow rates managing risk so it's quite a different beast from long-only investing. And a lot of the long-only players just haven't really picked up those skills. But
2: uh, Yeah, so in the uh, evolution of overall uh, you know, quantitative investing, do you see this as smart beta as just kind of a middle ground on the way to a more long-term shift to that systematic investing that you just described?
1: I think smart beta products make sense. They are akin to long-only index investing with value tilts, which, which does make sense. I mean, I think you can outperform, say, the S&P 500 if you tilt it towards value or tilt it towards momentum. So they do add value in investors' portfolios. They can be put together very cheaply you know you're you're nearing the fee level of just the S&P 500 index fund so fees really come down and if you want to run a long short hedge strategy ultimately that will provide a different risk return profile that would be you know true factor investing which is different than smart beta so i ultimately think that both methodologies can play uh, an important part in investors portfolios And that about wraps it up, ladies and gents, episode five of the Absolute Return podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, send us some questions, leave us a review, and tune in for next time. Cheers.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.